Hey guys, uh, we're back with another episode of the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, I am your host, Chuma Opineme. I am a GI fellow at uh, Emory University, uh, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Jason Brown. Jason, you should you should say hi to the crowd. Hey y'all, how's it going? Uh, so we just got done with. I always say it's a really good interview because they really are. These are, I mean, Dr. Shazia Sadiq is an excellent human being and she was gracious enough to be pelted with questions at the end by us that, you know, would have ruffled, you know, the, the grisliest of, of physicians. And she was just, yeah, she was incredible. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the third installment of the Emeroid Digest podcast. We are really glad you decided to tune in today. So today we'll be, we will be discussing the recent AGA guidelines on iron deficiency anemia. And to do this, we will be spending some time with Dr. Shazia Sadiq. Uh, Dr. Sadiq is a gastroenterologist and health services researcher who practices out of the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine. Her interests are broad and include the integration of evidence-based practices into clinical care, quality improvement, health policy, and she was the prior national policy chair of the American Student Medical Association. Uh, she is also the founding director of AGA's Congressional Advocates Program. As you can see, her bio is super extensive, and we are really glad to have her on the show. Uh, Dr. Sadiq, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. So I feel like um, reading about you is one thing, but um, I guess if you had a more personal one-liner, uh, what would that be to just so our audience get to know you a little bit better? Well, yeah, you, you definitely covered uh, the breadth of areas that I work in. Uh, a core part of my research and QI work is in GI bleeding and anemia, which I'm so excited to talk to you all about today. Um, but what I would say my ultimate goal really is, is just to help find ways to sh shape our healthcare system into one that is more equitable, high quality and data driven. Sweet. That's awesome. Um, so I guess, um, you know, given all the interest that you have professionally, uh, what do you do in your free time if you have any? <laughs> well, so I recently caved into peer pressure and we got a Peloton. So that's nice. been my new hobby. And I, I'll i have to say I'm definitely new. I'm only six weeks in, but it's it's been so much fun learning and kind of uh, building up uh, different uh, activities on the Peloton. Nice, nice. I feel like the Peloton is slowly sweeping the whole entire nation <laughs> In including gi including gi for sure <laughs> yeah yeah actually i just found out there's a peloton treadmill i, I saw an ad yes yeah yeah but i'm more yeah. of a bike person i feel like it's like better on your knees so i'm gonna stick with that <laughs> fair point on especially yeah. for the endoscopist standing up <laughs> smart so true um so i you have a, a lot of broad interests I, I guess i'm curious if we uh took it back a little bit. How did you get, or I guess, when did you know that you were going to be, you know, a physician or and how did you know GI was your specialty of choice? Oh, that's a great question. I 
Actually, my background is in um, health policy and advocacy, like you said, and I was that person in college who was rallying on the streets of Philadelphia for increased funding with for HIV AIDS. And I used to go to meetings in the basement of churches and I loved grassroots advocacy. And so my passion was always thinking about how we can help um, as I said, fix the healthcare system uh, to make it more equitable with uh, better access and higher quality care. And it wasn't even until residency that I realized how much I liked gastroenterology as a field. And I thought, look, this is what I really enjoy doing clinically. I love endoscopy. Um, you get that immediate gratification. You stop a bleeder, but you also get this other side in GI of colon cancer screening and public health uh, awareness. And so I felt like GI was a really good match for me clinically, and it was clear that there was a need for uh, advocacy and quality in really any subspecialty in medicine. And so for me, it's it's actually been a really nice uh, tie to be able to to bring some of that perspective into the field. Well, awesome. one of the things that, that we like to do with this podcast is just sort of celebrate um, those of us that that go into careers in education and research and advocacy. And um, and so one, thank you for your contributions to GI so far. And we know that there'll be more that will follow along as our careers develop and yours does too. But um, two, uh, is asking folks that come on the podcast that, that get into these positions, it takes a lot of work to get into the position that you're in to, to even be able to do the work of writing a guideline. And so um, keeping in mind some of your fellows that are just a couple of months in the first years or residents who are, want to get into GI fellowship eventually, or even assistant professors um, like ourselves that, that are trying to develop a career and um, think about moving forward. How, how did you get from, I'm a resident interested in GI or I got into GI fellowship to, to where you are now? Um, maybe talk a little bit about the role of, of mentoring that that played as well and how you sought out those opportunities and, and made the most of them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you hit the nail on the head about mentorship and sponsorship. So when I was a fellow, I, I decided to get my master's in health policy research. And that was very clear to mm -hmm. me that that was what I was interested in. And I wanted formal training on health services research, implementation science. Uh, but where I had significant sponsorship was that my division chief at the time, Anil Rusky, while I was a fellow, nominated me onto the AGA Clinical Guidelines Committee. And so there I had the opportunity to uh, become a trainee methodologist in grade methodology. And I will say it is extremely daunting being an, a fellow on such a high profile committee. Yeah. Um, and so I couldn't claim expertise clinically in any area. So what I really stuck on to was learning the methods in evidence synthesis and guideline development. And, you know, I actually wasn't initially that interested in it because I thought, well, I want to think about how to implement it. And I'm not sure that the, the synthesis part is where my heart is. But you realize that so much of, you know, moving the needle on patient care is understanding how we got there and how are the data synthesized and when do we do meta-analysis and is it appropriate to get a pooled estimate or is there too much heterogeneity and how are we going from evidence to decision making? Are we thinking about outcomes like equity and cost? And if we're not thinking about those things, then our recommendations are going to be very different. And so that process of 
really understanding how to do it robustly was something that I just got very fortunate, honestly, to get that type of training um, during my fellowship and later led to other opportunities like this. Now, that specific training in, in grade methodology and data gathering and synthesis, had, did you self-educate? Was that a part of your master's? Did you learn that on the fly from mentors in the committee? Yeah, that's a great question. So the AGA, around the time when I, I first started, uh, developed a program specifically to train grade methodologists. And this was through the grade network. Uh, you could attend some conferences, do a series of seminars. And that was really a remarkable experience for me. Uh, it allowed me to network with people even outside of gastroenterology. Oh, oh. Okay, so I, I'm pretty excited. <clears throat> I feel like we should get to the guidelines just because I feel like um, uh, so much of these guidelines have that sort of stamp of like really thinking through equity, cost, um, and really you know, making that the undergirding of, of these sort of this iron deficiency guidelines. So I'm excited. So I feel like we should just get to them. Um, okay. So number one, one thing we always ask guests is um, sort of how to approach guidelines, um, especially because in this case, you know, there's, you know, the AGA guidelines and iron deficiency anemia, but there's also the technical review that came out a little bit before it, you know, should, should we, um, are we missing out if we just jump to the guidelines and skip over the technical review and tell us how they sort of work together? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions. So per Institute of Medicine standards, it is extremely important that all guidelines are based off of a systematic review of the literature. And this allows us to make sure that we are inclusive and broad in the evidence that we're including to underlie our guideline recommendations and this is very different from an expert opinion statement in, in which scenario it's possible uh, theoretically to more ch cherry pick literature or to miss something. And so uh, the process actually is side by side. We work very closely with the technical review team. Um, and this actually might just be a good time, as you said, to talk about how the guideline process works. There are you know, topics that are nominated. They go through a, a detailed vetting process. Uh, about what the evidence base is on the topic. Are there other guidelines by other societies there? Are they outdated? Is there practice variability in this area? And then a report is written and through a lot of discussion through the committee and the uh, governing board, topics are selected. And the technical review team and the guideline panel meet at the outset to decide what are the questions we're gonna focus on? What is the scope of the guideline? And then the technical review team spends their time synthesizing the evidence, running their searches, extracting data, and then that is presented to the guideline panel, uh, at which point formal recommendations are developed. Awesome. Uh, that's, that's, that's really helpful. Jason, that, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That process where you're creating the recommendations, because there's actually some narrative in the guidelines, which I appreciate that some things didn't make it in or some things there was some debate about. What is that creative process like? Who drives that? And, you know, not that we're looking for juicy bits of gossip like it's contentious, <laughs> but, you know, how do you reconcile what people want to put in, what people don't want to put in, what didn't make it, how you don't necessarily put it in, but maybe give it a nod in the narrative? Yeah, great questions. So 
ultimately it you know the entire panel and the technical review team all work together but as you said when there are differences it really comes down to the the senior grade methodologist assigned to it uh, who will work in conjunction with the guideline chair so in this case it was dr cynthia co was our guideline chair and our senior grade methodologist was Dr. Ingva Falketer, who was the chair of the guidelines committee at that time. And so the two of them, you know, tended to have the final say. Um, <laughs> but the nice thing actually, and what was unique about our guideline panel was that we actually had a general internist, Dr. Andrew Harris, who was part of our guideline panel. And that That's was cool. Yeah, that was just us acknowledging that hey, this really lives in the primary care space and mm -hmm. we want our guidance to be relevant and useful for primary care doctors as well. Sweet. Okay, let's let's get to some of the meat. Are we getting to the meat? Is that okay now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's do it. I ad-libbed there. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I just don't want to... Okay, let's get... To... Okay, so first of all, um, I guess... I guess one of the strong recommendations is is um, using uh, 45 nanograms as a cutoff for um, iron deficiency anemia. And I feel like, I don't know if there was a cutoff as strong as this before, but I feel like now when I say that in clinical spaces, it's kind of, I don't know, it's not questioned as much. I guess, how did you guys pick 45 versus I guess they had mentioned 15 and, and take us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the the real strengths of the technical review is that they did such a good job just modeling data, um, and they did that specifically for this question. And so, uh, they show in one of their tables uh, the difference in sensitivity and specificity with each of these levels. And the the bottom line is that at a level of fifteen, the sensitivity was was pretty low, it was fifty nine percent. And the specificity was 92%. But what you end up with is with a bunch of false negatives, which means that there is a missed opportunity there. And when we're living in a world where we know that there are rising rates of GI malignancies at earlier ages, we don't want to miss uh, gastrointestinal cancers, uh, especially when we know that the harms from endoscopy are actually quite low these days. And so... Uh, the table shows us that we really can have a significant uh, mortality reduction with increasing the cutoff from 15 to 45. And the downstream consequences are pretty minor and rare. So for example, less than one perforation in a population of 1 million men and premenopausal women, uh, which would you know, very likely be offset by a substantial reduction in the number of missed gastrointestinal cancer. There's, a, there's strong recommendations versus some of the uh, conditional recommendations. Um, and I, was, I guess I was interested that you know, when it comes to, it seems like in folks who have you know, iron deficiency anemia, you guys... Primarily, you, you would go for bidirectional endoscopy. Um, but I guess it was conditional in premenopausal women, but it was a strong recommendation, I believe, in postmenopausal women and, and men. Um, I guess I was interested in, you know, what underlied that difference there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, actually, I, I'll say a few things. The first is that Prior to this, the existing guidance actually was pretty notably against doing bidirectional endoscopy in premenopausal women hmm. um, because they often attributed anemia to uh, menstruation. 
But what I really want to clarify here is that the scope of this guideline is on asymptomatic iron deficiency anemia. So that doesn't just mean no overt GI bleeding. That also means we're excluding patients with bloating, epigastric discomfort, diarrhea. That's different. You're going to do endoscopy based on those symptoms. Similarly, if there is a patient with menorrhagia, you have symptomatic iron deficiency anemia that is not asymptomatic. And so we were really trying to focus on, we can't assume that every premenopausal woman has menorrhagia and that's the cause of her anemia. Um, and so in order to, to look at this, and you can see that even though you know bidirectional endoscopy is a strong recommendation um, for uh, men and postmenopausal women versus a conditional recommendation, for uh, premenopausal women, we really do outline uh, the yield of bidirectional endoscopy in both populations. Now, there's a lot of caveats to the number because of the evidence base in itself. There's there's issues with it, but in um, men and postmenopausal women, bidirectional endoscopy found lower GI malignancies in 8.9% and upper GI malignancies in 2%. But if you look at premenopausal women, it's much lower. It's about 0.9% and 0.2% respectively. Mm. So, mm. so those numbers are much lower. And so that is part of what drove our conditional recommendation. The other part is that we really need to acknowledge that there is a heterogeneity amongst this population of premenopausal women. For example, should we really be withholding a scope from a 44-year-old woman just because she hasn't turned 45 and has, you know, and meets the cutoff for colonoscopy uh, for screening who's premenopausal but doesn't have menorrhagia? Do you really think she's much different from a man? Whereas, you know, a 21-year-old menstruating person who's average risk for GI malignancy, there may be it may be more reasonable to assess patients' values and preferences in terms of you know, how they feel about undergoing endoscopy versus trialing iron first, uh, you know, that's really where that conditional recommendation comes in is just, you know, recognizing that this is a heterogeneous cohort. Awesome. Awesome. That's really helpful. Um, so I guess, you know, one thing I really like about these guidelines is how practical they are. Um, and I really like how you guys, you know, really sort of drilled into like the practicalities when it comes to endoscopy. Um, so I kind of wanted to move to I guess what the guidelines had to say about do's and don'ts uh, during endoscopy. Um, so firstly, I guess we should talk about H. pylori. Um, it, it's, I think one of the recommendations was, um, well, I guess, I guess I'll just ask the question, you know, should we be biopsying for H. pylori routinely in patients who have asymptomatic uh, iron deficiency anemia? So the answer there is no, and this is a this is a tough topic, and and ultimately it's because the role of H. pylori as a causal factor for iron deficiency anemia is unclear, and the technical review found weak evidence to support the effectiveness of eradicating H. pylori in patients with iron deficiency anemia. Then on top of that, if you add in the cost of doing gastric biopsies there really wasn't enough benefit to suggest routinely biopsying all patients with anemia. Instead, it's much more cost-effective to do urease, urease breath testing instead. Interesting, yeah. Now, I, I should I, I want to ask the same question about atrophic gastritis as well, because I feel like it, you guys got into that as well. Um, should we be routinely you know, biopsying for atrophic gastritis? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, I'll throw in here just 
talking about the sneak peek and behind the scenes, um, one of the ways the guideline process works is that we, it's very iterative. And so even after our guideline is done, there is a public comment period and a peer review comment period. So this guideline was preliminarily presented at DDW and people from the audience said, you didn't talk about atrophic gastritis. Why not? So we went back and we added this in. So I just want you to know that, you know, the things that you guys bring up in the question and answer session and comments, it does make a difference. We want it to be um, practical. So that's a great process. <laughs> so this was not part of our original scope, but we went back and looked at it. And um, here the recommendation to not biopsy was just mostly driven by the fact that there was insufficient comparative evidence to support the benefit of endoscopy. Um, but another important factor was also that uh, there aren't well-accepted management implications after a diagnosis of atrophic gastritis. So, like, what's going to change by detecting it earlier? Um, even if you are, you know, randomly biopsying people and, and you think the yield is low, is it going to change management for that small subset of patients? And so, given that there wasn't great data to show that, uh, we overall felt that um, we should not be doing random gastric biopsies. I, I do want to comment here, though, that all of this is uh, different than targeted biopsies. So this is true for H. pylori, too. If you see erythematous mucosa, please biopsy that. The goal in endoscopy is to look for targeted lesions and abnormal mucosa, anything that can cause anemia. Uh, really, you know, these two questions here are asking about random biopsies for normal mucosa, then no, there's, there's not a, a benefit in doing so in all patients. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like we just have to, we should round this out with, um, uh, should we routinely biopsy for celiac disease? Because I feel like, and it seemed like the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, cause you will of course do that. Um, it seemed like there was a big factor of cost in, in this, this recommendation, but I'll, I'll let you maybe explain, um, you know, if we should be routinely biopsying for celiac disease. Um, yeah, so this is a great question because, you know, this is this was definitely something that was very controversial, and it's also something that was very misunderstood about our guidelines. So I'm I'm really happy that you're bringing this up, and I'm hoping I can I can clarify this a bit. So, uh, first of all, there were no comparative studies that assessed the benefits of routine small bowel biopsies. Zero. So I just want to say that because. We should sometimes be challenging why we've done things a certain way for a long time. So there were no comparative studies. So in order to make a decision, we didn't just say, well, there were no studies. We're going to think about what we think is best. Instead, we said, let's first figure out how often do we find celiac disease in patients with anemia? So what is that diagnostic yield of biopsies? And then what is the accuracy of testing and then cost at the end, like you said? So they found 11 studies, over 7,000, almost 8,000 patients. But the pooled diagnostic yield, when you're getting totally random biopsies, is only 1.15%. This is very, very low. Serologic testing, on the other hand, is much less costly and has a high pooled sensitivity specificity, 93 98%. And so, you know, in order to have a pragmatic approach, what we actually did was we looked at three different management strategies. So first strategy, you're doing routine small bowel biopsies in all patients with asymptomatic anemia. Okay, that's what a lot of people were doing before, maybe still are. <laughs> Second strategy <laughs> is you go get your TTG IgA, 
in every patient and you only biopsy those who test positive. In that scenario, those who test negative and have negative bidirectional endoscopy, they're getting iron. And that would fail in most patients with celiac disease, uh, which would mean that they had, you know, a false negative serology. And then that subset of patients would ultimately go back and get repeat endoscopy with biopsies and ultimately get diagnosed. Now, the third strategy, we really, you know, we also added this in at the end because this came up uh, significantly in peer review and public comment was just this very common scenario in which a patient comes in for a diagnostic endoscopy and, they, you know, maybe it's an open access case and they didn't have any prior celiac testing. So here the evaluation begins with performing bidirectional endoscopy. Don't do biopsies. Then you get the TTG IgA for every patient. Then those who test positive go back to get a second scope to confirm. Those who test negative, if there's a subset like this, like the first scenario who actually, you know, did have celiac disease, fail iron, go back and get repeat EGD. So we, we modeled all of those by cost. And it showed that the first strategy where you're doing initial serologic testing was the most cost saving. And the one where you're routinely biopsying everyone was the most costly. So that's really... It's a long answer, but that that it was a detailed explanation as to why we came out with saying no routine biopsies for celiac disease. Again, this is asymptomatic patients. If your patient has bloating, epigastric discomfort, diarrhea, of course you are biopsying those patients. Or or presumably the endoscopic findings that you would you would associate with celiac disease. So again, just hammering home that point that these are totally normal endoscopic exams. Yes, thank you. Definitely. Mucosal abnormalities, any suspicion for celiac disease, please biopsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, but I think that's, um, I just want to, st- first of all, uh, that can only be found in the technical review uh, because you guys kind of allude to it in the guidelines, but you really have to like, I really had to like, you got to dive into the stuff to figure out what, because it's interesting, this guideline is kind of that, at least that portion is, that's really, it seems like the, the, the thing that moved the needle was cost. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, that that's kind of, it's it's really what's the most cost effective, not like necessarily picking up the most, but it's like, it's the cost effectiveness. I thought that was just interesting that that's like the right answer, you know? Yeah. And, and this is, you know, you've hit home on an important point, which is that the brains behind any, any guideline is in the technical review. It's in the systematic review. It always is. And I'm saying that as somebody who, in this case, I was not a systematic review co-author. Um, so I have to give a shout out to Dr. Don Rocky, Dr. Osama Altayar, <laughs> Dr. Kalmaz, Dr. Ingve Falketer, because really, um, they they do they crunch the numbers and then that's presented to the guideline panel and, and we you know we go from there to from evidence to decision making using great methodology. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's that's really. Oh, and then I thought that was interesting too. Sorry, not to hammer too much on this point, but <laughs> it was really interesting. Like um, when they went through all these three scenarios, uh, they even acknowledged the fact that you know, it's kind of a hard. Not every single practice setting does you know do these extraneous calls look the same. Look the same, you know, because like let's say you biopsy, let's say you you know you, someone has asymptomatic iron deficiency anemia, you go in, mucosa looks normal. You know, but then their TTG, let's say it comes back, um, you know, sl- uh, abnormal or something, and you want to go back and biopsy them. You know, if we're talking about our Grady patients who had to take off time from work, you know, transportation costs are not just like just driving in. It's like you got to take a bus 
uh, you know, an Uber. Or family member has to take time off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's like, you know, how do you, these costs look different. So it's almost like, I don't know. I guess you kind of have to think about your own practice setting, you know, in light of these guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's always the patient values and preferences when it comes to, you know, endoscopy, biopsies, repeat endoscopy. And so those are things that always have to be taken into account as you're tailoring decision making for your patients. Yeah. yeah. But I'd say it's, you know, Chuma, especially it's, it's our job to educate the patients based on the data and based on the guidelines. Mm-hmm. And, and some, some patient populations will have higher le- health literacy than others. And, you, you know, some will, will rely more on a paternalistic sort of decision making process. And that, you know, this is where getting these guidelines is so important for us um, and understanding the how behind it, because mm-hmm. you can translate that for the patients and help help that meet where their patient preferences are. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I, I, I will move on now. <clears throat> okay. So, um, okay. So you guys got a little bit into, um, you know, the role of capsule endoscopy. So uh, it, this is kind of interesting to me too. So in patients uh, with asymptomatic iron deficiency anemia and then negative bidirectional endoscopy, um, you guys suggested a trial of iron supplementation over jumping straight to video capsule endoscopy. Um, I feel like this has changed a lot of things. Uh, so uh, I guess tell, tell us why. I, I don't know. Or I guess tell us why and then maybe some of the caveats. Some patients who maybe you would maybe want to do capsule endoscopy on um, earlier. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, a theme of this of this review and guideline was that just that there was a lack of comparative studies. And so that really made um, a decision-making and the certainty of evidence uh, more challenging. But since there weren't any comparative studies showing that performing capsule um, would reduce the risk of either having or developing some adverse outcome like death or cancer, uh, it, it was it was a difficult to recommend in favor. Um, and then we tried to spend some time looking at the diagnostic yield of capsule, but the best we could find was indirect data from 16 studies that showed that it detected cancer in about 1.3% of patients. Uh, but we felt that that was an overestimation given that symptomatic patients were included in those cohorts. And so overall, the diagnos- diagnostic yield was quite low um, with capsule. And of course, you know, in order to, to treat whatever the underlying etiology is that's seen in uh, VCE, you have to typically do some type of a deep enteroscopy and there are definitely more harms and costs associated with that. And so that leads to some of the caveats, which is, is the patient safe and stable enough to undergo deep enteroscopy, which does have a little bit more of a different uh, risk profile. But, you know, on the other hand, if there is a patient that needs anticoagulation and a capsule could provide important prognostic information before you initiate or reinitiate anticoagulation, it definitely may make sense to go ahead and do the capsule uh, at the same time. You know, you, you do your colonoscopy, it's negative, you turn the patient around in the same anesthesia, you do the upper endoscopy that's negative, and then you deploy the capsule. I think in many circumstances that can make sense. Uh, but given the lack of evidence, 
trialing iron first to see if there's a response was our recommendation. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess going along with, with iron, trialing iron for, you know, supplementation, um, how do we know if people are refractory to iron versus, you know, they've shown response? Yes, this was definitely something that came up and uh, we did we didn't actually formally search for, you know, iron treatments and what formulation is best and what dose would and for how long would you have to say b before you claim somebody to be iron refractory. We felt that that mostly should be, you know, worked on in conjunction with the hematologist and uh, many of this should come out of hematology societies with a little bit outside of our scope. But the guidance that we did give just to be, you know, pragmatic as we want providers to implement it, as you say, it's important is to to trial oral iron for about a month. And we should expect to see an improvement in the hemoglobin after that time. If you're not seeing it, then, of course, ask about could there be issues with taking the medication, such as intolerance or or other reasons, malabsorption, um, and then and then discussing moving forward with additional evaluation. Yeah, and you guys mentioned a little bit about this in the paper, um, just going into like, because I feel like there's so many different, I don't know, I don't know if they're myths or just like, you know, old wives tales about like, you know, using vitamin C with iron or like using every other day dosing because that's supposed to be more effective. I guess that's a little out of the scope of, the paper i mean yeah no you... I, I you're right we didn't we didn't formally search for that so you mm -hmm. know we have a paragraph in there that says that uh vitamin c co-administration is commonly recommended to to improve oral absorption but that the evidence is overall limited against we we didn't systematically search for that so we didn't you know, outline it in the same way uh but the overall recommendation is you know, a daily dose of 150 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron. Um, and, you know, sometimes lower dosing can be effective uh, and maybe more tolerable. And so, you know, tweaking things depending on the patient response is uh, important. Should we be like expecting a sequel to come out with <laughs> you guys teaming up with some hematologists to, to really give us all the nuts and bolts on this? Or is that just wishful thinking on my part? <laughs> No, I think I think you're asking all the right questions. I mean, there were so many. I actually thought we had a very neat and nice scope for this um, guideline, but it was very clear in um, you know editorials and um, various things that came out after that. Uh, there are so many other areas that that do need more research. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I don't. This isn't a full. I wanted to. Sorry, I feel like Twitter is, is here to stay at this point. And, you know, um, we just have to, we're just living in Twitter's world. Um, there was a, a mini case that I just wanted us to think about because he, he hasn't described all the details, but Nikki Dong at Dr. Nikid uh, mentioned this case of a patient who had, you know, really profound iron deficiency anemia. Um, uh, I guess the post goes as a gastroenterologist in training, self-proclaimed <laughs> hematologist. Uh, what would you do <laughs> next if you saw a ferritin of one? Uh, comments appreciated. He said, bidirectional endoscopy, question mark, call heme, question mark, IV iron. And then 
to give a little more background on some of the other labs, the patient has a hemoglobin of 9.2, uh, MCV of 84, and retic index of 0.6, which is pretty low. Um, so I, um, I guess one question I had off bat is that, uh, you know, does it matter if someone has really profound iron deficiency anemia, or do you kind of just kind of lump them all in the same, I don't know, same sort of box? Or, you know, just... Yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, what that really shows is that person has significantly depleted their stores, right? And so absolutely talking to hematology, figuring out how to replete them quickly, um, ideally through IV iron makes sense. But um, from a gastrointestinal perspective, I think you're right that it doesn't necessarily matter. You know, the goal is to do bidirectional endoscopy, find a lesion, target it. Uh, the type of lesion could be exactly the same as something with a higher ferritin. It's just mm. that this has been undetected for longer. Yeah, and so we're yeah. still looking for malignancies, and that's our, our first and, and most primary concern. Yeah. I want to ask, similar to that, um, who owns IDA? So, so is it the hematologist? Is it the gastroenterologist? You know, from our perspective, we can offer scopes. So we can roll out malignancy, vascular lesions, ulcers, anything that we could either diagnose and medically manage or treat with the scope. But I feel like very often, and increasingly so in my limited experience so far as a fellow and junior attending, we're getting called earlier, faster, not just for iron deficiency anemia, but all different types of anemia that may or may not have an iron deficiency component. And I, we often joke on our consult service that we're turning into hematologists. I don't know if you have the same experience as well. So, <laughs> so, so, so who, who owns this workup? Are, are we the first call? Is it appropriate to think about malignancy first, rule that out, and then hand it back? Do we, what's your philosophy? Do we co-manage these patients moving forward? with the iron recommendations that we've been talking about, how, how do we, how do we move the ball for these patients? Honestly, in an ideal scenario, this would be, you know, what we would call quote unquote, the primary team, the primary care doctor, mm -hmm. the internist, the hospitalist who's doing the anemia workup so that we're not saying check an LDH, check hemolysis. Right. Labs, <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and that once it's decided that this is a chronic iron deficiency anemia, that there that's when we come in and we say non-invasive testing for celiac disease, H. pylori, actually, ideally the primary care doctor is doing that first, and then we are coming in and doing bidirectional endoscopy afterwards. So that really should be the steps. Um, separately, there is the scenario of an acute anemia, which, you know, even if there's no overt GI bleeding and acute anemia would also fall outside of the scope of, of this guideline. Um, so, so there may be some nuances there where in an inpatient setting where, you know, we're going to, you know, respond a little bit more quickly. Um, but, but I, I think you really, you know, hit the nail on the head that this isn't always, anemia is not always gastrointestinal. We're here to help when it is iron deficiency anemia, but ideally we'd be all working together with the primary team, hematology when necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This, this question randomly came to my head. Um, so I feel like one thing, I guess, cause I was going to ask you, you know, what are the things that didn't get into these guidelines that you wanted to see? That, that's my question. That's, it, that's on the back burner. It's coming. Um, but <laughs> one of the things that isn't in here is like, you know, timing of endoscopy for asymptomatic iron deficiency anemia. 
you know, because I feel like, you know, when it's upper GI bleed, there's, you know, 24 hours or when it's, you know, esophageal varices, 12 hours. It's not 100% clear, actually, like, um, you know, like we know what they should be getting. Um, but when, I guess, is a question. Did you guys think about that or was that like too contentious or? No, I think that's a great question. Um, I'd have to look back, but I don't think that was data that was extracted from the studies to see, you know, how soon um, bidirectional endoscopy was done across the studies. I think, you know, assuming, and again, our scope of the guideline is that this is chronic, the more urgent thing to do really is if you feel like they need their iron stores to be repleted is you can start repleting them, even if you're going to do bi bidirectional endoscopy. So that is the thing that is, you know, more urgent. We don't want to see the hemoglobin continuing to drop. We don't want to get to a level of symptomatic anemia or a transfusion threshold. Um, and if and if the rate of dropping is quick, then of course, you know, the timing of endoscopy needs to be more urgent. Uh, but if this is a, you know, a new you know, chronic, slow progressing anemia, then the timing and the urgency is is not there. Typically adding them onto your schedule, it gets done in you know, a few weeks to months is typically fine. But I think in practice, probably most of us would go ahead and just check another hemoglobin or make sure their primary care doctor is following up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm bringing the, the back burner question on. So uh, <laughs> what things I guess did not make it into these guidelines that uh, either I guess you wanted to see or, you know, we should expect to see in future guidelines. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing we, we were asked a lot is what about patients who are iron deficient, but not anemic? Uh, mm. And that has come up That's because, yeah, because there are patients who we find a lesion just because we're doing a screening colonoscopy and we're like, wow, you don't have anemia, but then you look more closely and they're actually profoundly iron deficient. And so, so, you know, could we detect patients earlier by looking at iron deficiency prior to anemia is one question, but then is it cost effective to check an iron on every mm -hmm. single like healthy adult who walks into their <laughs> primary care practice? I don't know. So I think that's something that's, that's going to be down the pipeline. And definitely we got asked about a lot. Another thing we got asked about was, um, anemia in certain subpopulations. So IBD, you know, we see in a lot of our IBD patients, they're getting routine um, IV iron infusions. And how does that, how do we manage that? You know, what do we do? And so I think uh, all of those questions are, th are things that I think we could use future guidance on. Okay, that's, uh, that was, I actually wanted to add, that was perfect. I really wanted to ask that question. Actually, I forgot. Okay. Um, so that that's all I, I guess do we have any do we have any closing comments or i had i had one other question that, <laughs> that sorry this is just we see this so often this is oozing out of us yeah i know we'll have to we'll have to cut us off at some point but um so you, so you get that patient you it's iron deficient you do the bidirectional endoscopy it's negative you put them on iron and they improve i feel like we get into a little bit of a situation sometimes like we do with our reflux patients where they improve on a PPI, they feel better. Um, but we don't really know what the end point is and we still aren't that much closer to diagnosing the etiology. Where, where do we go in those situations? Um, I know we talked a little bit about a time frame, about a month where we would recheck, see if they're responsive, but do we send them riding off into the sunset with a prescription for iron for the rest of their lives or, 
when do we push the work up? When do we hand it back to him or the primary care doctor? Sometimes I feel like we get a little stuck with this. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something I've thought about a lot. I will, I will give the caveat though, that technically the, this wasn't covered in our guidelines. So this is right. maybe a little bit more of my We're ad living. Yeah. A little bit more of my take on, you know, how we, how we do think these things. And I think there you end up, as you said, in a spiral of how many times do you do bidirectional endoscopy plus or minus VCE over and over again. Think about how many times we do it. Maybe we find an AVM. We're not sure if it's the culprit. Maybe yeah. we zap it. Maybe next time there's an AVM in a completely different area. Not sure if that's the culprit and we zap it. And so then at some point that becomes, uh, you know, really a, a patient values and preferences conversation. And so uh, I have some patients who are, 80 years old and they are, it's, it's much more of a slam dunk iron for the rest of your life. You know, yeah. if you see blood in your stool, of course we are re-examining it. If you're symptomatic, if the iron stops working, we're, you know, we are looking again. Um, but to what end do you want to keep undergoing endoscopy when we have like now our own data of diagnostic yield in this patient is low, you know? Right. And so I think, I think <laughs> here's where we really get into the um, tailored decision-making at a patient level. And at that point, if you haven't done a video capsule before, you've done a negative EGD, negative colon, they are responding to iron. Um, at some point down the line, do you say, well, the patient doesn't want to take iron for the rest of their life. They're 52 and otherwise healthy. Do the VCE then see if there's a lesion, trial them off of it, see what the counts do. I mean, all those are, are approaches I've seen taken in the past. But how, how would you approach that specific patient where we, we haven't found or treated a causative etiology? Yeah. So, so again, outside of the scope of this guideline, but there are some data that show that, um, that actually repeating bidirectional endoscopy first. So, say, so, so they've already they've had it. It's negative. Mm -hmm. They've responded to iron. Now you're a few months later. Repeating bidirectional endoscopy first is actually very useful because in some large percentage of cases, 10 to 40%, there are actually missed lesions the first time. So mm. the most high yield thing would be to take a look again. And as I said, both of them are negative. Endoscopically deploy the capsule at that time if that's within, you know, what the patient would like to pursue and, you know, a more aggressive search for an etiology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh Jason, I'm, I'm cutting you off. Okay. Done. Cutting Done. you off. All right. So <laughs> that was a awesome discussion of iron deficiency anemia. Uh, Dr. I just want to thank you for, for coming on the show because um, I think there were <laughs> a bucket of pearls for our listeners to, to hang on to. Absolutely. It was such an honor to, to be here and to hang out with you guys this evening. So thank you so much for all of your time. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Until next time on the Emroid Digest podcast. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to assure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. 
No author, guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to seek competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast and specific commercial product, process, services by trading, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys. <laughs>